From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, we hear from Jason Carter, the grandson of Rosalind Carter, about her life and legacy. I'm Patricia Murphy, reporting live from Plains as tributes for Mrs. Carter continue to pour in. I'll tell you how Mrs. Carter's hometown is remembering her. Meanwhile, in Fulton County Court today, Judge McAfee could rule to throw a defendant on the Trump case back in jail. We'll tell you why D.A. Fonnie Willis wants his bond revoked. And we'll discuss how Donald Trump's defenders are going on the offense. As long as I have got the strength and the resources, I will fight this with everything that I possibly can. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Over the weekend, former First Lady Rosalind Carter died at the age of 96. She was a humanitarian, a human rights advocate, a mental health reform advocate, a wife and mother and grandmother. And who better to talk about her legacy than her grandson, Jason Carter, a former state senator who now chairs the Carter Center's board of directors. Jason, thanks for, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Greg. Well, Jason, your grandfather said he would never have won his election in 1976 without your grandmother's help. He considered her an equal partner, and he went to great lengths to show it. What, what made their relationship so special to you? Well, I think, first of all, Greg, he wouldn't have won his campaign for the state Senate without her either, <laughs> or the campaign for governor before 1976. Um, she was by far the best politician in our family. Um, I think, you know, some of it is that they came from the same place and they, uh, you know, just understood each other. And then they also worked at it. You know, I mean, they've they've talked for so long. This like almost one of the greatest American love stories, period. And, um, you know, they achieved an enormous amount, but they really did it knowing and committed to each other at every single step of the way. And it's it's a testament to who they are and how grounded they both were, that they went through all that they went through and never changed. Hi, Jason. It's Patricia Murphy. I'm down here in Plains, and so much of what I'm hearing from people here in Plains is just what you said about that partnership between um, your grandfather and grandmother. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about that, about the incredible role she played in um, the business so that he could campaign, um, even advising him on occasion, really playing an assertive role as first lady that so many others could follow. She, I think she seems to have been a real um, groundbreaking kind of woman in that space before it really was the, the role that we are familiar with today. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think part of that partnership and the power of that partnership is that And I don't know about you guys, but certainly for me, like I'm only good as a member of a team. There's so many things about me that I can't, you know, that I'm bad at. And my grandfather is the same way, right? There's things about him that obviously make him an incredible leader. And there's other things that are just like holes, you know, and she just was able to fill them all. Uh, And they were able to do that for each other in this complimentary, remarkable way um, that, that ended up being this powerhouse couple. And, you know, uh, you're in Plains. I mean, you see that town. It's a it's a 600 person village, really, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you know, they embody that sort of small town, rural America, rural South um, idea of of who we are and where we come from matters. And they really demonstrated that you can take the power of those little towns and take them to the highest reaches of of global prominence. It's a it's a totally incredible story. And again, they did it. They did it together. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hey, Jason, it's uh, Bill Nygut. I want to say I know all of us on the show here send our condolences uh, to you and the family on the loss of your grandmother. I know how close all of you really were. So I'm very, very sorry for you as you mourn her loss. Um, Let me, you know, it's interesting. There's a story that I think is fairly well known at this point that... um, after they were married, your grandparents were married, they were up in New York, 
um, where he, he had been at, at Annapolis. He went on to work in nuclear submarines. They were living up, the, up in the north. And when uh, his father died, he told your grandmother they had to come back to Plains. And she, for at least a short time, put her foot down, said, no, 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 I really like life up here. I'm not ready to go back to that very small town life. And yet she did, of course. She adjusted to it magnificently, um, and and it became a really important place for her to find, in many ways, um, her grounding. But certainly, as she moved to the governor's mansion, eventually to the White House, that gave her that larger life that she'd also longed for, yes? Well, yeah, I think if in, in the story in my family, is that when they were in San Diego, which is a heck of a lot harder to leave than New York, in my opinion. But, um, <laughs> okay. but they also, she did not talk to him for the drive <laughs> from San Diego to Plains uh, and would say to my father, who was, you know, a baby or a boy, excuse me, a boy at the time, I think all three boys were there. And she would say, you know, tell Jimmy that, you know, we need to stop for food. <laughs> and they wouldn't talk to each other. But there, there's a level of stubbornness among both of them. And, and let me let me just say one thing. I appreciate your condolences, Bill and, and Greg and, and Patricia, all everybody. It is so much easier for me to talk about her and him as sort of global leaders, um, as people who've done amazing things, than it is for me to, to process the personal side of this for right now. Uh, you know, my grandfather's been in hospice for eight months. Um, and so we've all sort of been able to, to, to process a little bit of that. For my, my grandmother, obviously, it was a, a, a steeper decline at the very end. And this is all really raw for us. And she was such the glue for our family. She was the personal caretaker in so many ways for so many of us, including me personally, at many different times in my life. Um, and it's it's I, I appreciate you you mentioning that and and also <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge sort of the, the the odd aspect of this for me, which is we are all going through this normal human morning, but we do have this public facing view of it and <clears throat> given what they've done it, it is it is an incredible story to tell um, but i just I just want to say thank you for that and the last thing bill you're a hundred percent right they they got what they wanted. Um, out of all the things that they did, I mean, you do not get more from a life than the two of them got. Hmm. Jason, uh, we're here with Jason Carter, uh, Rosalind Carter's grandson and the chair of the Carter Center's board of directors. And Jason, you know, that, that's such, such powerful words, uh, so meaningful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to stay on that subject because your, your grandmother helped your grandfather reinvent the post-presidency. They traveled the globe together to wage peace, to fight uh, horrible diseases, to promote democracy. And you were there along for the ride for some of that over the last few decades. So talk about any memories that really stand out. I know it's a broad question, but anything that really stands out from your travels abroad with your grandparents? Well, you know, I I think, uh, number one, you know, I'm 48 years old. And I, my grandfather is still alive. My grandmother just passed this week. And it's sort of amazing to be my age, right? But on some level, it means that I've gotten to spend such a significant part of my life with them. And, and for the last, as you mentioned, 20 years, I've been working with them at the Carter Center. And I'll tell you, we, we have traveled. We have observed. The Carter Center has observed more than 100 elections around the world. We've uh, we'll have eradicated the second human disease ever eradicated, guinea worm disease. That's essentially just a disease of poverty and almost exclusively in Africa, exclusively now in Africa, for sure. And we've traveled all of those places. And most of the time, people talk about Jimmy Carter. But I went to a global mental health conference just before COVID. And I, could, I was introduced, as you just introduced me, which is as Rosalind Carter's grandson, so many times I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and her impact, her 50 years of advocacy on mental health. And if you think about how far we've come, even in the last five years, but if you think about where we were as a community and as a, as a society in addressing mental health 50 years ago, um, she has really been one of the key drivers on that issue. And she's globally recognized on that issue. And if, and, and if the Carter Center did nothing, except promote my grandmother's mental health programs, my grandfather would agree, all of us would agree, it would all be worth it because those 
the, the mental health uh, advocacy, the reduction of stigma, all of that. She really devoted her life to it here in Georgia as the first lady and kept that advocacy going in that dogged, stubborn, caring way uh, for, for 50 years. Jason, another legacy that I think she leaves behind and was really, really at the forefront of is a related issue, but different. And that is for caretakers, training caretakers and supporting them while they're taking care of their families. Um, There's an institute for caretakers at the college where she graduated. And to me, that really speaks to the role that she played as a mother and a grandmother, but also in the role here in this small town in Plains where it's so obvious that people are taking care of each other, but that that really does come at a cost in some cases. Sure. So that that Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving uh, I'm so glad you brought that up, Patricia, because that's the other piece, right? I mean, she she really spent her life thinking and focusing on not forgotten things, but the things, the people that, that do so much for others that we sometimes lose track of. And that caregiving aspect, all of us, I will tell you, in the last couple of years, and, you know, but in many aspects of my life, you know, we have ended up as caregivers for parents with significant cognitive decline for, you know, my grandfather, you know, there's a a stress that comes along with caregiving that so many people feel and that really wasn't recognized enough and that there weren't enough resources devoted to it. And that Rosalind Carter Institute at Georgia Southwestern, um, it it really, for the first time, has focused on the the stress and the the needs and, and the support that we can give to people who are in those caregiving roles. And, you know, we've even in my family taken advantage of some of those resources as we've um, approached my grandparents over the last couple of years. And so, you know, both personally, again, for me, and then looking out at the world, uh, you know, she made this great impact. Jason, um, your grandfather, of course, went into home hospice um, many months ago now. Um, And so he was at home with your grandmother, with Rosalind, in that same house they'd lived in since 1961, except for the time in the governor's mansion and in the White House, um, when I know your grandfather jokingly used to call it government housing. But tell us a little bit um, about what life has been like for them since they both were back home um, in these months uh, that, that they were living together, and both of them, of course, in a declining health. What what was it like for them day to day at that house in uh, Plains? Yeah, so there's a couple aspects of it. Bill. Like, number one, of course, it's been tough for them to sort of watch the other um, go through the, 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 the last sort of pains of aging and, and, and life. And that has been difficult for the two of them. But but there's also just this incredible beauty to this idea, as you said, that, you know, they were married for 77 years and you don't get to choose when you, you pass on. But for them to be able to, to be together for these last days in that house that they shared that was so full of love, that was surrounded by family. Um, and again, at the end of this incredible life and this incredible partnership, it is there is no better way. Uh, that anybody, I think, would have wanted them to live out those those last days. You know, I, I think the biggest worry that I have now uh, is, and that all of us have now, is just how my grandfather is doing. I mean, I, you know, he's now spent two nights without her. And, you know, I don't know if he thought he was ever going to do that. Uh, and so I think that, that right now people are just trying to be there for him and and uh, and support him in that. We We can only imagine how difficult it must be for him uh, right now. Um, And so our thoughts are obviously with him as well. I do want to mention very quickly that we heard our colleague, Ernie Suggs, who of course has covered the family for a long time now, um, has told us about the fact, uh, and it may have come from you for all I know, that together they used to sit at night and eat peanut butter ice cream, which seems so appropriate for a f- peanut farmer to uh, love first and foremost. And I just think that's a lovely little touch, Jason. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the things that they do together, they 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 spend their whole lives, you know, like every for 50 years, they 
on Saturday afternoons would have hot dogs and Bloody Marys, you know, and they, they just, there's these little things about them that people are just like, wait, are you kidding me? You know, and they really did read the Bible every night to, with each other before bed. I mean, they really, truly did. They prayed together. They, 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 you know, went on walks together. They rode bikes together. I mean, it is everything that you think it is, hmm. if that makes sense. You know, there is, there is, you know, you can't overstate or, or blow out of proportion the, the love affair that this was. Jason, before we let you go, you've told me the story before of the moment, I think it was in 2018, when you knew your grandfather truly retired. And I think that really speaks to the relationship because your grandmother was going through a major surgery and he was very concerned. Yeah. So, you know, the, as you guys can imagine, the Carter Center, which is this incredibly successful organization with a remarkable track record. And one of the great aspects of my grandparents' legacy is both the financial health of the Carter Center, the track record of the Carter Center, and the fact that we are going to be able at the center to continue on with all of the programming that we do without my grandparents' active involvement. Um, but as you can imagine, for the last 20 years, we've been planning and talking about what is going to happen when they're no longer active. And um, we, it was some years ago and, and my grandfather had kept telling me personally, Oh, I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to retire. But, you know, he would say that. And then he would, you know, send 10 emails in the morning about exactly what was going on. <laughs> um, but my grandmother had an emergency surgery and he called me at six o'clock in the morning and he said, Hey, I've been, haven't slept yet. And I've been sitting here all night and I realized I'm, I'm done. Uh, at the Carter Center, and I'm going to let you take the executive committee. He said, because I sat here all night worried that she wasn't going to make it through the night, and I realized that all I want to do for the rest of my life is go home to Plains and, and be with Mom Carter. Hmm. And that's what they got to do. That's what they got to do. Well, Jason Carter, thank you so much for joining us during this time of morning. We appreciate you more than, more than you know. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Patricia, of course, our thoughts are with Jason, with President Carter, with the entire Carter family, really the entire Plains community. I know you're there right now and you're hearing an outpouring of support there. I was there last night. Very quiet, but very, very mournful. Yeah, it's very mournful. It is. um, But it's obvious that something has shifted. The flags are at half staff. The shops. Uh, some of them have tributes to Rosalind Carter. Um, there's a Bible verse in front of, uh, next door to the, um, to the Plains, uh, trading post that says a job well done, good and faithful servant, you know, one of their favorite Bible verses. And it is just somber. Uh, they of course are preparing for a very large public event next week, but right now, it is a time of really reflection and and really deep sadness. Plains is that kind of a small town where everybody knows everybody and they've known each other their whole mm-hmm. lives. And so most people in Plains have never, I would say almost everybody in Plains has never been alive without the Carters here. And the Carters have always been the tallest trees in the forest here. So they're they're really having to just to what they know is an end of an era for this little town. And, um, but they, everybody to a person said they have changed knowing the Carters. They try to emulate them, the way they treat people, the kindness that they offer in ways large and small. And so their mark will be here um, for a very long time, even as they reach this new era where they, where uh, Rosalind Carter now has passed away. Bill, that's the type of community where everyone in town knows the former president is Mr. Jimmy and Mrs. Rosalind. I mean, this is, this is, this is more than, you know, as Patricia said, more than just, you know, people you see on TV screens. Yeah. And every one of them has a story to tell. And, and I, you know, I mentioned this on the show briefly yesterday, but I moved here in 1983 to become a reporter over at WSB TV news. And, and one of the things that happened was I, I got to uh, interview the Carters both uh, very shortly after I arrived. And, of course, coming from Chicago, I'd watched his presidency unfold. I'd seen him lose that re-election campaign. They were still smarting a bit in 1983 from the loss. But but I mention it because when I went to see them, I was astonished by a former president of the United States being so warm, so lovely and welcoming and so humble um, he treated me as if I were – he acted as if he were just another guy 
who I was getting to come and see. And I'll never forget that. And over the years, um, my encounters with them were often the same, just very warm, very lovely. You got to cover them like a journalist, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you can't learn to care about them deeply as well. Yeah, and I had the, the honor of going with them to Dominican Republic mm-hmm. and to Haiti, going all over Georgia with them, and not just covering their work in the post-presidency, but seeing how they interacted as a couple. And I, I tell my wife, no joke, they are a model for, for all of us. Well, we will have much more coverage about Rosalind Carter's life and legacy coming up uh, in the next few days because ceremonies celebrating her life will begin next week after the Thanksgiving break. Just ahead, allies of Donald Trump and the 14 remaining defendants in Fulton County's election interference case against Donald Trump are going on the offense. We take a closer look just ahead. This is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Every morning delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia Morning Newsletter is your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Bremmer, and me, Greg Bluestein, housed under our brand new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com slash newsletters. Thank you for being here as we look forward to 2024. Guys, we also have another special guest in the studio right now. Uh, my daughter, Nicole Bluestein, seventh grader, who is home from school this week. Nicole, want to say hi to everyone? Hi. <laughs> uh, Nicole is no stranger to the microphone, not just her social media platforms, but she also got the had the experience of interviewing multiple political candidates back in 2020 during the election campaign, including John Ossoff, David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, Raphael Warnock. Right, Nicole? Yep. <laughs> yep. She is no shortage of words. Well, folks, I want to turn your attention to another story. Over the weekend, we wanted to take a closer look at how Donald Trump's top defenders were going on the offense against Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. We know that top Republicans in the Georgia Senate filed a formal complaint against Willis a few weeks ago. And the state GOP is now airing an ad bashing her for bringing this criminal case against Trump and his allies. But I wanted to get a closer look at the efforts around the state to raise cash to help pay the legal fees for some of the defendants. So I stopped by an event on Saturday in Canton, Georgia, where former state Republican Party chair David Schaefer was the featured speaker. He is one of three people charged with taking part as a Republican elector, and he sounded pretty defiant. Let's listen to the audio. The questions that I asked, the complaints that I made, the lawsuits that I filed the actions I took to preserve remedies under those lawsuits. And I will tell you that if I had to do it all over again, knowing the trouble that would come on me, I do not know that I would have done anything different. I can't think of anything that I could have done different. Patricia, so he is expressing no remorse in those comments he made up in Canton over the weekend. It definitely does not seem like David Schaefer is going to be pleading guilty to anything anytime soon. I don't think we're going to see him um, having a tearful apology to the judge as we have in some of these other defendants. Well, I think, you know, it shows one of the two distinct strategies here, either to sort of cut your losses, do a plea deal and get out of this experience while you can, or just to really dig in. Obviously, Donald Trump has dug in. And now David Schaefer and other Trump allies here in the state are really digging in. Um, not only are they uh, raising money for themselves, although I think at about 30, I think it was $30 a ticket for the event that you went to mm-hmm. for the um, Georgia Defense Patriot Fund or the Georgia Patriot Defense Fund. Um, they are also, it's a multi-pronged attack. They are attacking Fonnie Willis as a rogue prosecutor. They are going to their own state their own state senators and representatives asking them to file challenges against Fonnie Willis. They are doing everything they can to discredit Fonnie Willis, to discredit the prosecution and insisting that they still believe it was stolen in 2020 and that they did nothing wrong. I mean, there is immense peril to this strategy, obviously, for David Schaefer. It is something um, that when it's public, it's something that the judge sees, any potential jurors are going to see, but it's clearly the strategy that they have decided on. And there is a very large swath of the Republican Party among those base GOP voters 
who also believe that they did nothing wrong mm-hmm. and are also dug in right along with Donald Trump. And there's there's just a key piece of audio when we we may be sharing it or you might have just done it and I didn't hear it. But David Schaefer saying they're not just prosecuting me. This is about everybody else at, at within the GOP. And it's just sort of the ultimate deflection and bringing it's not just about me. It's about you. And that's a classic Donald Trump line. It's been very effective for him. Yeah, let's Patricia, you might as well have cued me. In. Let's 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 play that audio right now. And they're doing that. Not so much to punish me but to send a message to the next chairman of the Georgia Republican Party and to the members of the state executive committee of the party and to each of you that you better think twice before you ask a question, before you protest an injustice, before you point out a problem or what happened to David Schaefer could happen to you. So, Bill, you know, that's David Schaefer saying that he is sort of a... a, a, Avatar, yeah, for, for, <laughs> a symbol, for, a symbol of defiance and resistance for for the rest of us. And as Patricia mentioned, he also in that same speech continued to question the results of the 2020 election, which we know President Joe Biden carried and won in Georgia by by about 12,000 or so votes. He called the election a dumpster fire. Yeah, you know. So uh, Patricia already mentioned that the defiance that David Schaefer is showing, and and this quote is really fascinating to me that it's not just him, it's all of us. Except it's only all of us if we signed up as fake electors in the 2020 election. It's only us if we were part of an election conspiracy in which we tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. It's only us if we showed up at a legislative hearing alongside of Rudolph Giuliani and spread lies about the election. So, but but here to the point, I, I, I'm sorry to be just sort of sarcastic about this, but more to the point, Greg, I'm curious what you and Patricia think about this. Look, we remember David Schaefer was an incredibly powerful member of the state Senate. Mm-hmm. He went on thinking he was going to be the next lieutenant governor of Georgia and lost in an upset uh, primary election in that race. So all of his power as a political leader started to diminish. He was still chair of the state Republican Party, of course, which was a powerful enough position. But his political future, from my point of view, doesn't seem to have too much more far, further to go. So here's my question. What do you two who've covered him, and I used to cover him as well, what do you think about why he's chosen to be defiant rather than make some kind of deal with the prosecutors, the four who already have uh, taken deals have gotten off uh, pretty lightly. The question is, could Schaefer get a sweet deal as well, or is that part of the problem? Yeah, Bill, that's such a good question, because as you mentioned, yeah, David Schaefer lost a really narrow runoff to Jeff Duncan back in back in uh, 2018, um, and then immediately turned around and ran for GOP party chair, and then fully embraced Donald Trump. Yep. I mean, if you look back at him in 2016, he, he was aligned more with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz endorsed his bid for for higher office uh, in 2017, 2018. And so we've seen David Schaefer going to go further and further into the MAGA wing of the party and really owe a lot of his reelection bid as party chair to Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump came out and endorsed him earlier. Now, what I heard in those comments were him saying, I will continue to fight this as long as I have the resources to do so. And this is very, very expensive, something that every other speaker up there on that stage mentioned. This is very costly litigation. And the state party, Patricia, has agreed to float and finance that litigation, which is also furthering a divide between the state party and more mainstream Republicans like Governor Brian Kemp, who started his own political operation. Because in part, I don't know if he's ever said this, but he's kind of said it between the lines, that Republican donations going to help further uh, election campaigns shouldn't also be going to spend the legal fees for these three fake electors. Well, Greg, you called him an avatar earlier, and really he's an avatar for what's happened to the Republican Party since Donald Trump came on the scene from somebody who is a very traditional, suburban, almost Chamber of Commerce Republican on his way, kind of zooming to the top of the party. And then with that Donald Trump energy, that Donald Trump base, the entire party itself has sort of become a David Schaefer. It is now um, completely, or a portion of it anyway, is 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 totally aligned with Donald Trump, no longer even familiar. The party is not familiar to many Republicans. 
and David Schaefer is not familiar to many Republicans. It has gone from the Chamber of Commerce Republican to the MAGA Republican, and it is damaging the party in the process. And so you have the Republican Party apparatus also summarily split apart. So we literally because of David Schaefer and his role in this. So now the party is raising money for Schaefer and his legal bills and other Republicans' legal bills. The rest of the party, like Governor Brian Kemp, is off on its own, trying to chart its own course. And so he is just the ultimate example and avatar for Republicans in Georgia today. And then, Bill, there are the legal implications of what he says. He has to be very careful, David Mm. Schaefer, any defendant has to be very careful of what they say. Like all the other defendants, David Schaefer took out a bond, his was $75,000, that bans him from doing anything that could be seen as intimidating a co-defendant or witness or, and I'm quoting here, otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. So when he's on that stage, he can't directly attack Fonnie Willis or or other potential witnesses or other, any other co-defendants. So in fact, when he was talking about those other four who took plea deals, he he was very broad. He basically said, under Fonnie Willis's latest order, it sets a deadline of next summer in order for any of these remaining co-defendants to take a to take a plea deal. And he said, in that in his case, it'd be eighty years in prison. He'd yeah. be out well into the next century. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, he's got to be uh, watching very closely uh, Donald Trump's appeal in uh, uh, Washington uh, yeah. appeals court about uh, to to uh, uh, which we saw was in court yesterday to try to. Uh, alter the gag order that he is now under to uh, not attack uh, potential witnesses, uh, uh, personnel who work for the court and the like. And Schaefer's dealing with the same kind of uh, situation here. But, you know, Greg, I'm curious about something. You you stopped at that event in Canton. And from the picture, the photograph, you described it as sparsely attended. It seems to me, in a way, that was a generous description. The <laughs> photograph of it, it looked like it was really very empty, which I guess isn't discouraging if you're raising money online in some ways. But it certainly didn't look like there was a groundswell of people who showed up for that event. No, I wasn't there for the whole six hours. It went from 11 oh, to 5 p.m. <laughs> so it was six hours. I was only there for a snippet of it. Um, I had other family-related things to do that day. And I think Georgia was playing a certain game against Tennessee uh, that I had to watch. But, you know, it was interesting because there was, you know, maybe at best a couple dozen people in that in that green space. And I'm talking maybe 20, 25 people maybe who came in and out. But as I was watching, um, I would bump into curious passersby and including a local Republican official who had no idea this was going on, who was actually there to try to watch the, the Georgia game. <laughs> Because usually that same green space hosts big theaters for Georgia games and it brought all their paraphernalia, was ready to watch the game with their family and said, what is going on? And I said, there's David Schaefer, you know? <laughs> so uh, it, it was confusing to a lot of people. But Patricia, you know, David Schaefer wasn't the only speaker there and they've had multiple of these events. They had one in Banks County that was, I think it's safe to say, far more popular uh, from the accounts I read about it. Hundreds of people showed up. So this is an emblematic of what they're doing. But there's also other things that the state party is doing, including, as I mentioned earlier, airing a 30-second attack ad. I don't know if it's ever getting broadcast play, but it's de- definitely a digital ad that seeks donations to this Fulton Defense Fund. And the spokesman for this is current. Republican chair Josh Bakun, a close ally of David Schaefer, has now taken over the party. And he's the one out there. And he said this at the at the event on Saturday as well. He is saying Fonnie Willis is the one who's interfering with the election by bringing this case in the first place. This all has a lot of echoes of the 2022 election to me when Republicans were airing screenings of 2000 Mules, which was the um, movie about the 2020 elections sort of airing a lot of the conspiracies that were not true, but really fully embraced by uh, the GOP base on really on the far right of the party. And the reason that this entire strategy is so deeply concerning and frustrating to other Republicans, and I would say people aligned with Governor Brian Kemp, is that this did not work in 2022. This strategy of focusing on the 2020 elections and trying to connect it to every Republican voter and trying to convince them that it's been stolen from them and it's an abuse of them and their rights, 
that just simply did not work in 2022. It was a huge flop, even within the GOP primary when Brian Kemp won and Brad Raffensperger won. And this as as a focal point for the Republican Party itself of Georgia heading into 2024 feels like catastrophe waiting to happen for a lot of Republicans. And so above and beyond um, the false information and asking for money that won't be spent on candidates and polls and grassroots organization, just the fact that this is the focus, uh, even taking part of the focus away from 2024 is really creating an immense amount of frustration inside the party. Yeah, Patricia, we've heard that drum beat over and over again from Republicans like Governor Kemp saying, focus on 24, not on 22, or 2020, I should say. Well, on the same subject, uh, Bill, later on this morning, another co-defendant in this case, Harrison Floyd, will be in court today. And he's in court because of something that we mentioned earlier, that that those terms of the bonds, which say you cannot intimidate a potential witness or co-defendant. Well, he's been one of the most combative co-defendants in this case, and prosecutors now are trying to revoke his bond, accusing him of making comments and social media posts that they say could in- be intimidating to Brad Raffensperger and to potential other witnesses in this case. Yeah, and I think I'm correct, and you'll uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Harrison Floyd is also the only one of the 19 original uh, uh, conspiracy defendants who's actually served time in uh, jail because uh, when he first uh, came for his uh, initial uh, hearing, uh, he didn't have an attorney to represent him. He went to he went in. He was in county jail for three or four days. I think five, about five days. Five days. So now uh, he'll be in Scott McAfee, Judge Scott McAfee's court because he continues to use social media to attack uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger. He still goes after. Ruby Freeman, mm-hmm. who, of course, we remember Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, her daughter, as uh, the two Fulton County election workers who were accused by Trump Republicans of trying to rig, feed fake ballots into the machines. It was a Fulton ginger County. mint, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, of course, it was Harrison Floyd who was one of the people who showed up, and it's one of the reasons he's under indictment, at 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 Ruby Freeman's house or Shea Moss's house to to intimidate them to tell them that if they didn't admit to what they had done they were going to face severe consequences they could end up in prison themselves so how ironic that today it's Harrison Floyd who could end up back in jail Patricia Harrison Floyd has pursued I guess it would be safe to say one of the more unpredictable legal strategies everyone else has sort of delay 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 and they've had at least some sort of uh, formulated strategy. His is different. Uh, you know, he stayed behind bars for five days, which made him a celebrity, helped him to some Trump supporters, helped them raise some cash. He, he's raised at least $340,000 online for his legal defense. But he's also trying to prove falsely that Donald Trump won the election. He subpoenaed state and local officials who have really nothing to do with the charges, but he says it will help prove his point. And I think that, ironically, it's really doing the opposite uh, by lashing out at so many people online and continuing to defy um, the orders and expectations of his behavior outside of prison. Um, it undercuts what is the argument of at least one other defendant of who had also gone to Ruby Freeman's house, the argument that, well, we were just trying to give her information. We were just trying to help her understand that she had done something wrong and that uh, the election was stolen. Um, if you are trying to say that you were not menacing, you were not threatening, you were only trying to share information, but then you were also being so aggressive toward other people currently involved in the case. I think that is a very damaging picture and portrait to paint for the judge as he considers what the next steps are for Harrison Floyd. Well, we've got to take a quick break. Just ahead, a new angle of January 6th, why hours of footage from the insurrection is being released now, almost three years later. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics quite like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter every day. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. All one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. I'm here in studio with the great Bill Nygut and Patricia Murphy's reporting from Plains. We're also here with producer Natalie Mendenhall and my daughter, Nicole Bluestein, who is home <laughs> from the week from school. And she's been very, very talkative this morning. Right, right, Nicole? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the third yep we've gotten out of her. As a quick programming note here, the Politically Georgia team will be taking time off for this Thanksgiving holiday and Nicole's upcoming birthday as well. Tomorrow you can hear a re-airing of a show we taped at UGA Thursday, the NPR network will take over. And Friday, we've taped a special viewer mailbag show we know you're going to enjoy. We'll be back live on Monday. All right, guys. So we're going to take it to the Capitol now, where House Republicans have uploaded online hours of previously limited surveillance video taken during the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Now there's thousands of hours of footage that were being released by House Speaker Mike Johnson, and it makes good on his promise that he made to conservative members of the party to release that footage. Overall, Bill, we're talking 44,000 hours of footage that will eventually be released. What's interesting about this is that apparently the new speaker uh, released this video as part of a deal he made with some of the most uh, conservative Republicans uh, in the House um, because they wanted it released, somehow believing it was going to portray an alternative narrative but our colleague Jamie Dupree, who's looked at a lot of this video, says all it really does is show just how violent the demonstrate the demonstrators, the insurrectionists, were in confronting uh, the uh, uh, Capitol Police and the way in which they moved into the Capitol itself, destroyed property. So it's a very strange way to try to make a different point about what happened on January 6th. Yeah, we've definitely seen these conspiracy theories thrive among elements in the far right. And Patricia, I mean, one of the concerns of this is, yes, it will stoke those conspiracy theories, which we'll talk about, but also that it could also compromise security because it gives a bird's eye glimpse of the state capitol, uh, the U.S. capitol, I should say, of some of the security procedures uh, of never before seen footage or rarely rarely before seen footage that was really limited to a few members of the media and and members of that January 6th commission and, and other lawmakers. Yeah, it's not just a bird's eye view. It's really an inside out view. Mm-hmm. It's almost an x-ray. And it has uh, camera angles from Capitol security uh, footage that shows very specific checkpoints. It shows how the Capitol was being guarded that day and where it was overrun. It shows some of the doors that were unknown to people until January 6th happened and there were some doors that closed that people were not aware of, sort of these emergency measures to protect and guard the members. And uh, it's very hard to see how the Capitol Police and Capitol Security itself could have changed dramatically since then. So Democrats are very, very worried that showing all of this information, including the security protocols on that day, some of which remain in place exactly as they are and exactly as they were, there are backup systems that have been added in some cases, but not every case and show. So Democrats are saying you you are literally showing people how to do this all over again, but how to do it better the next time. So, so Greg, um, the uh, release of this video uh, coincides with Marjorie Taylor Greene's yeah. call for a new investigation of the January 6th insurrection. And um, 
I was lucky enough to be able to see you at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival Saturday night interview Adam Kinzinger, who really was a member of the actual January 6th committee, and he had interesting comments to make to you about what was happening now. Yeah, uh, he did, and he is very concerned. You know, it's interesting, Bill. He blames himself, in part, for the rise of the far-right Republicans Mm -hmm. like Marjorie Taylor Greene. He helped harness the Tea Party movement way back in 2010. Uh, The Tea Party movement turned on him in 2012 and tried to oust him from office. But he took advantage of those trends. And he kind of blames himself for not speaking up earlier about the far right in his own party, including his vote against the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He basically said there's always a technicality and that a lot of Republicans who ended up voting against it used it, even though they had grave concerns about Donald Trump. But when they look at where their party is going now, he even said, and he said, I can't believe I'm saying this right now, but he would be back in Georgia next year, Bill, to campaign for Joe Biden if Donald Trump is the nominee. I was, I was, that was, that was the headline. I tweeted it out as we were sitting there watching you interview him. And we should say, by the way, you had a packed, House, the entire gymnasium of the Marcus Jewish Community Center, uh, which said to me, uh, not only they like you, but they really were interested in what Adam Kinzinger had to say about the climate in the Republican Party right now. Yeah, and Patricia, what he had to say about these calls, these new conspiracy theories that have really emerged again or been revived by this footage is this. I'm quoting him right here. These people are dumb as a box of hammers uh, when it came to those calls for a new January 6th commission to investigate. Many Republicans still in the office want to put this behind them. They don't want a, a new Marjorie Taylor Greene inspired commission uh, to investigate, but it, you know, they, they also can't be short-sighted because there's a, a, a significant block of the Republican party who still believes that January 6th wasn't an insurrection, that it wasn't a deadly attack on the, on the U S Capitol, that it wasn't an attempt to overturn the 2020 election results. Yeah, I've been really interested when I go back to Capitol Hill, how different the environment is and how much of that is um, explained as being directly related to January 6th. The level of distrust and anger that still exists between Democrats and Republicans and between some Republicans and other Republicans has it really feels like it has kind of scorched the fabric of Congress that they cannot find a way to go back to working together because they just don't trust each other. They really they believe that other members of their own party or in some cases members of the other party try to bring down the government and are still within the government trying to do it again. And so this conversation about the future of democracy, it kind of feels very high level, but it is it it is so um, core to the dysfunction of Congress right now. And I also think it's something that Democrats in particular believe is an issue that is motivating many voters that was underreported in 2022. And I talked to a number of Democratic uh, candidates in 2022 who said, you know, people ask me about democracy. They don't ask me about um, specifically abortion or individual issues. They want to know what are we going to do to basically save the country from autocracy. And, And that's an issue I think we'll see a number of other d- Democrats dig into in the 2024 elections. Well, and Patricia, to bring it home to Georgia, also, there is a someone, a Republican, who spent time in jail for his part in the January 20, January 6, 21 attack on the U.S. Capitol, who is now running for Congress in Southwest Georgia. Uh, his name is Chuck Hand. He's among at least three Republicans challenging Democratic incumbent Sanford Bishop. And, you know, it's a reminder to us that, yes, there's these narratives that are emerging on the far right that nothing really bad happened on January 6th. But there's also literally a candidate who's running for office using that as a platform for running for office. Well, that's exactly right. And as a part of his uh, his explanation to a group of supporters, he said he was just completely wrongly convicted, never should have gone to prison. He said, I went to prison just for holding my wife's hand. Yes, we were at the Capitol, but we were holding hands on our way in. And I don't actually know if he went in or not, but he was certainly um, uh sent to jail for his role in January 6th. And so you're exactly right. While some, um, many voters see that as really 
uh, anathema to democracy. His argument to Republican voters down there in the second district is that this is the democratic process, that he is trying to save the country from the direction it's going. And it wasn't an attack on the country. It was an effort to save the country. I don't know how far that argument is going to get. Um, however, he's one of actually two people in the country who participated in January 6th and went to jail and is now also running as Cong- running for Congress with that as the central piece of their platform. Uh, real quickly, uh, Greg, uh, obviously Patricia makes an important point that you talk to many Democrats and they say democracy is what's at stake in 2024. Adam Kinzinger said that's the only issue uh, in the 2024 election as well. But of course, we know that that most of the polls a year out, so there's still a long way to go, show that Donald Trump is running uh, side by side with uh, uh, the president of the United States. So not everyone sees democracy at stake here or think it's the biggest issue in the election. Yeah, and, I, and we'll see those polls begin to narrow even more. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know who, who knows. Um, but I think as these issues begin to clarify, Republicans are saying that they, you know even more of their supporters will will show up, start showing up in these polls, and certainly Democrats will say when it's a contrast, when it's a clear contrast between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, their polls will start clarifying too. But Patricia just reminds us we're a year out, so a lot can happen. I always look back to 2020. At the beginning of 2020, we thought we kind of thought impeachment would be you know the race would be a referendum on impeachment, and by March that was a uh, long in the past, a distant. We're memory. a year out. Yes, we're a year out. There's a war raging in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden just turned 81. There's a lot that could happen between now and Election Day. Well, we're going to take a break for a few days. We're going to be back on Monday after the Thanksgiving holiday. Bill, I hope you're going to get at least some chance to take a breath and spend some time with your family. Yeah, and you, you, you as well, Greg. You've just come through this wonderful family event about mitzvah of your daughter, uh, Nicole. So I hope you all get to have a great Thanksgiving. I have a spatchcocked turkey sitting in the refrigerator getting set to cook for my Thanksgiving family. I'm very excited about it. Patricia, are you cooking, folding laundry? Um, yeah, well, I don't know <laughs> what spatchcocked means, no, but I, I'm buying a pie for dessert to take to my mom's house. It just means and thankfully, you she it, and my sister are cooking. It just means you cut it down the backbone and split it up so that it's uh, flat, not big round turkey. And longtime listeners of Politically Georgia know that one of Patricia's favorite calming pastimes is literally <laughs> folding laundry. So I hope it you get actually, some time. It's actually the source of all anxiety, and I'll give thanks that I'm not doing laundry on Thanksgiving Day if all goes according to plan. There we go. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10, or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 every day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.